Very simply put, for a title this morning is The Burial. It has been a while since we've been in the book of the Gospel according to John. By this stage, Jesus Christ himself has been tried. He has been crucified, as we will see again this morning. He has died. Now, for most people who have ever lived or ever will live, death comes unexpectedly. And that's a reality of life. We don't get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to die. We may feel that way sometimes, but uh, in reality, we don't know. People don't know what a day may bring, as the scriptures clearly say. In some cases, because of severe terminal illness, they may know that it's coming soon. But even in those cases, for the most part, people do not know the hour. They do not know when it is going to take places. And why is that? It is because none of us, there is no exception to this, none of us have authority over death. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 8, it says this in the first part of the verse. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. When it comes to your day of death, you will not be able to say, not me. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what you possess. It doesn't matter how much authority you've had on this earth. It doesn't matter what position. There is no way for you to stop that moment. There is nothing in this world by way of medications that can stop that moment. It is absolutely out of our control. That was not the case with Jesus Christ. His death just turn back with me in John, to John chapter 10 for a moment. It is good to be reminded of this. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we find and have studied the fact that Jesus Christ said, For this reason the Father loves me, that is Jesus Christ, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Hold on to that for next week. No one has taken it away from me. It wasn't the soldiers. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't anyone that took the life away from Jesus. It wasn't even Judas Iscariot. It was not Satan. We find that no one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, if you jump back to chapter 19 and you look at verse 30 where we left off, it says at the end of it, he says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He did it willingly. So unlike all other people who have ever come into the world or ever will come, we do not have control. Our life can be taken in moments by accidents. It's taken by heart attacks. It's taken by different situations. We do not control it. You do not control whether you will finish this day. But in Jesus Christ's came a case, his death was totally under his control. As we come to the burial and as we come to the gravesite this morning and the text before us, I want to say at the outset that I believe that this text shows something very important to us today. Number one, it shows the seriousness and the consequences of sin, that which no one wants to talk about, sin. If sin were not serious 
And if there were no consequences, we would not have this text in front of us. It is very serious. We think lightly of it and even push blame onto other people. Secondly, it shows us the reality of God's righteousness. Grab that. The reality of God's righteousness and his judgments. People have this false concept of God that he's just a God of love and he will overlook and certainly he would never send anybody to hell. This context that we have before us and this instance of Christ dying, having to face death and be buried shows you that God is serious and cannot do that. Because he is a God of love, he is also a God of righteousness and justice, and it demands that the penalty be paid. He cannot just overlook it. He cannot. We deserve hell. We deserve death. And this shows us God's seriousness of, uh, towards sin and that he is righteous and that a judgment is coming. There was a judgment here that Jesus Christ bore. And there is a judgment that is coming for us. It is appointed unto men once to die, then comes the judgment. You may not want to believe it. You may not want to think about it. You may want to hope that it's not true, but it is coming. We will give an account. If we have trusted in Christ, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's been paid for, and that is the seriousness of sin. Christ paid the debt. It's paid. And through faith, you've exercised faith in him, no condemnation. But still as a believer, take it serious. God is serious with sin. God is serious with us. And we will face the judgment seat of Christ to see what we've done since salvation. Not for heaven or hell, but in the basis of rewards or loss of rewards. God is serious with this. And we see it in this text. The wages of sin is death. And it must be paid. God cannot overlook it. He cannot take it lightly. His righteousness demands payment. And that's what this text is showing us. His love is so great that he loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. But the penalty had to be paid. So the love is seen in his mercy and his kindness. But the debt had to be paid. And we can't pay it. Why? Because we are all sinners and have come short of the glory of God. If you happen to walk through these doors for the first time, and I haven't even had an opportunity to meet you today, I guarantee you are a sinner. You have fallen short in the eyes of God. All men are sinners from beginning to the end of man's society and living on the face of this earth. We are all sinners. And we will all face the consequences of dying physically because of it, and Jesus Christ had to die physically in order to meet and to satisfy that, as well as bear the sins of the world. Uh, this brings fear. Death brings fear. And you might say, well, I'm not afraid of death. I want you to see just for one text this morning. Go with me to Psalm 55. David, who's a man after God's own heart, had a tremendous fear of death. And so it's part of being a human being that even though even believers who have trusted in Christ, there's kind of a fear of that unknown uh, coming and so forth. And yet we face it with confidence as a believer. 
But even David, for example, in the Old Testament, just one quick text, uh, chapter Psalm 55, verse 4, pick it up there. My heart is in anguish within me. You can look at the context. Basically, he was facing death. People were out to kill him. But he says it anyway. You'll see it. See it. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Look at what David says. Fear and trembling come upon me, and the horror has overwhelmed me as he thought about it. And he faced it. Now, he trusted the Lord. And I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, and I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Just that's enough to give you the, the taste of it. David was so overwhelmed, like a, if I could run away from it, but he couldn't. If it was his time, he would end up facing it. We all, and it tells us in the New Testament that it grasps all human beings in the book of Hebrews. But the good news we know is that Jesus Christ paid the debt. In his own body, on the tree, he paid the debt. In fact, as we left off in verse 30 quite a while ago, remember the words, and that was the title of my message, it is finished. I was fascinated uh, by the fact that I was away um, visiting with somebody from my past and so forth, and they happened to um, spend a moment on a computer and pulled up this particular message. It is finished, um, and we're sharing it uh, for a brief time with, with some people. But the point is, it is finished. Christ, what do you mean it's finished? Just that he died? No, the payment and the penalty for sin. So that now we see it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the good news, which we ought to be reminded before we get into the text this morning. Go to two texts, Hebrews chapter 10, just for a minute. Hebrews chapter 10, where we read these words, beginning in verse 11. It says, every priest, every time I saw this text, and by the way, this was dealing with the Jewish priest, but having come out of the background that I did, and that is Roman Catholicism, and having seen as an altar boy priest having sacrifices day by day, and that's what they call it, the sacrifice of the Mass, it reminded me of that. But in verse 11, it says, every priest stands daily ministering the offering time after time, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, verse 12, but he, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, one sacrifice for sins for all time, that is Jesus Christ, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Who are those who are sanctified? Those who put faith in Jesus Christ and his work. And you saw this text before, but go with me to Colossians chapter 2, just for one moment. Colossians chapter 2, and verses 13 and 14. Here's what Jesus Christ did. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, not we, he made you alive. That's grace. That's free. How? Together with him, having forgiven us, not some, there isn't any transgression, there isn't any sin that God cannot forgive or cannot be paid for. That's what it says. Having forgiven us all transgressions, having, how did he do it, canceled out the certificate of debt. There was a certificate of debt against us, considering of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And what did he do? He's taken it out of the way, 
How did he do it? Having it nailed it to the cross. That's a pretty vivid picture. So it's helpless for us, and death is coming, and why? And why cannot God overlook it? So people may want, you see those stickers all the time, coexist with every type of religion on it and so forth, and everybody's supposed to accept everybody's way to heaven. No, there's only one way. There's God's way. We would be helpless because we are all sinners. We will die because it's a consequence. We would die spiritually and be separated from God for all eternity had he not acted on it. And he must act on it because he's righteous. He did act on it in his love and mercy in sending Jesus Christ. The debt was paid. The certificate, if you will, was nailed to the cross and has been paid. The issue is faith and trusting in him for salvation. So that's very important for us to review and see again. And as we come to our text this morning, then the question is, did he really die? You say, what do you mean, did he really die? Is that really an issue? Yes, it is. In some people's minds, it's he never really had a full human body, and he never really faced physical death. Did he? Is he really the Messiah, in accordance with Scripture? Is there really a resurrection from the grave? Is there hope beyond the grave? We will seek to answer those questions as we continue through the Gospel of John. And let us try to answer the first two questions this morning from the text that is before us. Did he really die, and is he really the Messiah? So let's look at the verification of his death, or the death being verified, in verses 31 through 37. You look at them, and uh, we will deal with them now. First of all, over the years, there has been the denial of the death, physical death of Jesus Christ. Some saying that, yeah, maybe he was crucified, but they took him down from the cross before he died, and they hit him, and so forth, and he really never died a physical death. And... Is it true that he is really the Messiah that is spoken of the Old Testament because he died on the cross and the Jews still struggle with that? They were looking for a deliverer. Is this guy the one? And should there have been this physical death? And was it real? Well, the answer is yes, he did really die. Let's consider, first of all, the Jews. Let's take a look at the Jews regarding his death. And in verse 31, you can look at it. We see the timing of his death. It was the day of preparation, it says. It was also, if you look at verse 31, referred to the Sabbath was a high day. Let me just deal with this enough to address it. The day before them uh, was the Sabbath coming up, and that was Saturday. So this is Friday, and the Sabbath would have taken place at sundown. Jesus Christ was on the cross, and the Sabbath was before him, before them. But not only was it the Sabbath, but as we have seen in our study of John, it was also the time of the Passover. And the Passover lamb we have seen is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the annual feast of the Passover, and that happened, that it coincided with the, the Sabbath that was coming. So they needed the body down. It was a special Sabbath. That's all that verse 31 is telling you. And so the body needed to be removed. Why was that significant? Why would they ask for the body? And let me also say this. They obviously are not going to ask for a living body. They can't ask Pilate. They can't go to Pilate and say, so you get the testimony of the Jews. They wanted the body down, and they wanted it to be buried. But why? Turn back with me to the book of Deuteronomy, please. Deuteronomy chapter 21. That's right in the beginning of your Bibles. I want you to see it. Deuteronomy. 
the fifth book of the Bible and the 21st chapter. It's a very easy passage to remember because it's chapter 21 and it's verses 22 and 23. Let's look at it. If a man has considered, uh, excuse me, committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, verse 22. Now verse 23. His corpse, it's after he's dead, shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. Why? Two things to note. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. That's why you have that passage in Galatians. Anyone that hangeth on a tree, as the Lord Jesus Christ did, he's accursed of God. He became accursed of God. That's the payment of sin. But notice this. Not only is the, sin, the person accursed, but he says this. So that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. If they were to leave the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, not only was he accursed of God, but they're there during the Sabbath's coming and the Passover time, the land in their mind. The land would have been accursed to leave that body on the tree overnight. So you go back to John chapter 19, and that's what verse 31 means. Because it was a day of preparation, that is Friday, the bodies could not remain on the cross because it was a Sabbath, and it was a special high Sabbath. So they had to get the bodies down and bury them. So we have the testimony of the Jews. So what do they do? They request the legs to be broken. Now why is that? I want to be very quick with this, but efficient, I hope, or effective with it. Normally, as you've heard from me, when somebody would die on a cross, it would take days if they were of any physical strength at all. They would continue to last for a while. Then when they did die, they would basically leave the body to be decaying on the cross as a warning to uh, people around what would happen to criminals. Or they would just leave it to be eaten by the animals. Not very comforting thought, but that's a reality. But to hasten the death, they would be involved in breaking the legs and to get him down. And um, how would they do that? This was not very pleasant, but I will be brief with it. They would take an iron mallet and with one fierce striking blow shatter the bottom part of the leg so that they could not push up anymore. And, and through the shock of that hit, through the bleeding that would take place and the immense pain and everything else that was going on with the crucifixion, they would hasten the death and the person would die very quickly. I found it very interesting that in 1968, which is, to my knowledge and some of the research and trying to follow up on this, they might have done something since, but I couldn't find it. The only known archaeological discovery of a find of a crucifixion where the body was in place happened to be the one in which they found not only evidence of the crucifixion, but the lower legs of the body were shattered by one single blow. And that's kind of interesting. It ties into what we find here in our text. So the Jews, my point is this, the Jews made sure there was no doubt that this person was going to be dead and that Jesus Christ would be dead. And further, we take it now into verses 32 to 34. You've got the Roman officials and the soldiers. What happened? Well, they get permission. They go and they break the legs of the other two who were crucified with Christ. Why? They hadn't died. 
But you notice what it says. Get down to verse 33. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, he died physically. Now we have the testimony of the soldiers. These are trained people. Soldiers knew when a person was dead and when they were alive. They didn't have any question about that. They did for this for a living. They killed. They followed orders. Further, they not only looked on him and saw that he was dead, they wanted to be sure. So what did they do? First of all, they did not break his legs. No need to. He's dead. Just in case somebody might think, well, he's asleep. He's really stopped snoring, but he's asleep, and he's really not dead. What happened? Verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And so what happened? They pierced his side. Let me just say this. Soldiers knew how to kill people. So if there was any question, when they put that spear in, then it is debate whether it directly hit the heart or it hit the heart of the stomach, it hit a little below, it hit in the ribcage. I don't know where it hit because the scriptures don't tell us other than what it does say. It says in his side, they speared him. They knew how to kill and they knew to make sure he was dead. And so it was absolutely no question that Jesus Christ was dead. And you know what? I'm not going to get into There's all kinds of interpretations that are put on this. You know, whether or not uh, the blood was to signify something and the water was to signify something else. And it means this. Some said it means baptism and it means confer. I don't know anything about that, to be honest, folks. All I know is what it says. They pierced him in the side and he's dead. And then we have Pilate. Pilate would not release the body of Jesus Christ when we get into verse 38 unless he was dead. He wanted to have an authentication. It's just like today. We have what we call a death certificate. And you can't even recover from insurance uh, on, on an insurance policy unless there's a death certificate that's presented. Turn with me to Mark 15 for just a moment. Mark chapter 15. Did Jesus really die? And why is that important? Because, again, the payment had to be paid. If he was fully man, he had to face that. And if he didn't physically die, then we don't have to worry about dealing with a resurrection. But he did die. And in Mark chapter 15, look at verses 44 and verses 45. Now, verses 42 and 43 deal with what we're going to get to, and that's Joseph of Arimathea. But in, I want you to catch Pilate verifying that Jesus was dead. Verse 44. Pilate, wondering if he was dead by this time, summoned the centurion. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Verse 45, death certificate. Ascertaining this from the centurion. Yes, he's dead. No question. What happened? He granted the body to Joseph. So before we get to verse 38 in our text, what we see is that he was verified as being dead. Not only by the Jews, to be sure, not only by the soldiers, but by Pilate himself. And lastly, if you go back to our text in John, verse 35 gives us the testimony of the writer of this gospel, John. He says in verse 35, who has seen, he saw it with his own eyes, his testimony is true, he's telling the truth, and this is none other than John. So we have all of this verification that Jesus did die physically. So first of all, he died. There's no question. Is he the Messiah then? Yeah. Why? He's the Messiah of the Scriptures. Notice verse 36 and 37. 
These things came to pass to fulfill scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, the scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Yes, this is the one and the only. That's why there's only one way to heaven. This is the Messiah. This is the one that fulfills scripture. This is the one right to the T. He's the Passover lamb, and not a bone could be broken. Listen, the Jews gave the order to break the bones. Notice how the soldiers, trained men, fulfill scripture again. Not only did they fulfill scripture in casting lots for the garment, and they didn't have a Bible. These men do not know anything about the Paschal Lamb. They do not know anything about the Lamb of God not having broken bones. They come willing to smash his bones. There's no need. And they fulfill scripture. Jesus Christ is dead physically. Isn't it amazing? And it doesn't stop the fulfillment of scripture. Scripture will always be fulfilled. God's word will never return void. We know that we have eternal life because we're trusting in the authority of the word of a God who's the only one true God who cannot lie. What an encouragement. I know I have eternal life because the God who cannot lie says so. I know that I can trust in Jesus because the God who cannot lie says that's where to trust. And they fulfilled scripture. Not only that, we have the second part of it in verse 37 where the one that was pierced, do you think the soldier, even after not smashing the, the, the leg, said, wait a minute now, I remember the Jews talking about, I better pierce his side because I know someplace in the Psalms, not at all, folks, as foolish as that sounds, I want you to see how scripture is fulfilled and how God is so true to his word. That soldier just did what he normally would do to make sure, and he fulfilled scripture. And this one is amazing. I'm not turning to it. It's in Zechariah. If you want the reference, it's Zechariah chapter 12. Um, but it goes back to the incident of Christ, and it looks forward to the book of Revelation. Because the time is coming in which the Jews, who the Messiah was to come through, and did come through, and the Jews as a, basically as a whole, or as a nation, as individual believers, has rejected him as their Messiah, and did not want to believe on him. They wanted him crucified, and all the scripture gets fulfilled. The day is coming in which they will look on the returning Lord Jesus Christ coming back, the one whom they have pierced. Fulfillment of scripture. And these soldiers are used. Yes, folks, he did die. Yes, folks, this is the Messiah of scripture. The only one that God ever promised that could come and deliver the likes of you and me from the power of sin and death. The only one. And it's seen over and over again. That's why, again, John says in verse 35, he's written this and taking the time, even with the detail of the death of Christ and the detail of the soldiers to fulfill Christ. Why? End of verse 35, so that you also will believe. What do you need as evidence if you're here this morning and haven't trusted in Christ? You say, my own common sense, the, what the world says, and the world can't be right, 
I mean, can't be wrong. Oh, yes, it can, and it is. The one who is never wrong is God, the one who created us. The Jews should have seen it. They knew the scriptures to a T, and here it is in living color, if you will, and played out before them with visual aids like you and I have never had. And they still won't believe the hardness of the heart of man. Amazing. Then we get the graves identification. Why is that important? You're going to see when we come to chapter 20, there's just so many stories. Maybe the woman went to the wrong grave. Maybe they got lost. Maybe they, you know, they were all mixed up or he wasn't in a grave or whatever. He really died, folks. God so serious with sin that Jesus Christ had to come into this world, take on flesh, and yes, he had to die. And yes, he was buried. And you see the identification in verses 38 to 42. Listen, Joseph of Arimathea was the owner of the grave. Do you think that he didn't know where his grave was? He was the owner. Here you have Joseph of Arimathea, isn't this interesting? And Nicodemus, two of the Sanhedrin, two leaders who in the past have been silent leaders. Now, for the sake of time, I won't turn there, but I'll give you some references. We already learned in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, that John did not look favorable on people who were silent, quote-unquote, believers, who were concerned about what people thought of them. He's very clear about that. But in this particular case, finally, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, the one who in John chapter 3 came to Jesus by night and said, how can a man be born again? How can I get a new, new birth? How can I get this life that you're talking about? Can I go back into my mother's womb? That's who we're talking about, that Nicodemus. You notice another word of encouragement, folks? Don't ever give up telling people the gospel. Don't stop praying for relatives or friends to get saved. It's God's timing. Got a letter from the Garonis. I know many of you have seen it. Some of you have not. Wasn't it an encouragement? He used to work with a man. And as he worked with a man, before he went into the ministry, worked with several people, told them about the gospel. And 40 years later, this man came in contact with Miguel. I think his name was Roberto, if I remember right. If I'm not, you can tell me later. But uh, the point was, he came to him 40 years later, and he said, I have everything in, in essence. I'm paraphrasing. But he says, I have all the thought I ever wanted in the world. Something's missing in my soul. And he came back to Miguel Garoni, and he wanted to hear how that could be satisfied. And Miguel's got him down on his prayer list and met with him and shared the gospel. Don't ever give up praying. And that's what Miguel says. Some of these people have prayed for for years. We have a tendency to want to give up. Don't give up. Here we have Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. No longer, if you will, silent believers. It can't happen. If you truly know Christ, eventually it'll become public, not just in a comfortable group. They were at risk now. And I won't take the time. I'll give you the reference. I told you I would. Luke 23 shows you that Joseph of Arimathea disagreed with the decision of the Sanhedrin. 
And now he comes forth risking getting thrown out of the synagogue, thrown out of the Sanhedrin. It doesn't matter anymore. He couldn't keep silent anymore, and he comes to take the body of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, who spoke up a couple of times, now is at risk again. Why? Because if you know Christ, your testimony will be seen. It is by confession of the mouth, belief in the heart, but according to Romans, confession in the mouth. You cannot keep silent if you are a believer. It will eventually come out. And the point was they came out and took the body. Did they identify the grave? Of course they did. The owner knew where it was. And you can look at the detail. He was granted permission. I won't go into it. But also Matthew 27. Maybe when we get to the resurrection, I will. But in Matthew 27, verses 62 forward, what you find out, the Jews knew that Jesus was dead. They knew he was going to be buried, and they wanted guards that would be set up. So what happened? The guards were set up. They knew where the tomb was. The Jewish leaders knew where it was. The guards knew where it was. The woman who had been to the tomb with the spices knew where it was. Joseph of Arathea knew where it was. There's no mistaking. So when we get to the resurrection, folks, keep that in mind. Everybody knew that he died, and everybody knew where it was. And the other amazing thing here, again, is the fulfillment of Scripture. Why? He dies with the rich. Let me just address a little bit so I don't go by it. In verse 38, it says they came with a mixture of myrrh, 100 pounds. There's a lot of debate about the language on that. But it was a significant amount of pounds of herbs. Why? That is the way. It says it was according to their custom. They did not embalm the body. They buried it. And when they buried it, they would wrap it. And the indication here from some of the languages is they bound it. There were strips of it. And they would put in this, it was like a gummy substance. I don't want to get into all the detail. But in the, and it, the idea was to make it smell okay. Because as the body decayed, obviously, there was a smell to it. And that's the way they would bury them. And so they came. They didn't have time because why? They had to get the body down, verse 31, before sundown. And that's why the reference to the garden and that it was close by as well. There's no mistaking where this tomb is. And it's in a garden. And what happens is they put the body quickly with a ceremonial Jewish burial, but they haven't even had the time to put all the spices there. That's why the women are going to come back in the preparation later. So they know where the grave is as well. But again, you'll notice that he is buried with someone who is rich. Who is that? Joseph of Arimathea. That's who it is. We know that. We probably should just look so you see it verified. Matthew 27, just for one verse there. Go to Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, verse 57. When it was, it was evening, it came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph. Same thing we're learning. By the way, he's in all four Gospels, just to verify it. And it says that, uh, okay, he came to him. Being, notice this, also became a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower. He came to believe. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate ordered it and gave it to him. Okay, what was he? A rich man, verse 57. 
That is why, again, the scripture. Do you think Joseph, honestly, being part of the Sanhedrin, that his thinking was, hey, wait, I have some wealth. I have a grave that nobody's ever been in. And so I'm the one that God's using. No, 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 no. You see the way scripture was fulfilled? People question about scripture being fulfilled so many different ways. They copied it. The Lord used soldiers. The Lord used people in the authority of the Sanhedrin. The Lord used common folks all to fulfill scripture. Things happened when Jesus was even dead and verified as dead, all to show us that this is the true Messiah. All of it. That's why. And they laid him in the tomb. So Jesus Christ did die. Jesus Christ was buried. And they did know where the tomb was. And what I don't want you to miss is what I've been trying to weave in and out throughout the message was God's seriousness with sin. Do you think that God would have gone through all of this if he could just overlook sin? He took his only begotten son and truly Jesus Christ is the only one that fits that term that even I use so loosely, unique. He was one and one of a kind. Fully God, but if he's going to be fully man, he has to take on flesh. He did, Bethlehem. If he's going to be fully man, he's got to face the penalty of death physically and got to die. He did. He's going to be fully God. He's got to be without sin. He was. And if he's going to be fully God and fully man, he's the only one that can pay the righteous judgment of God on sin and become the accursed of God, and he did. He's got to be the God of Scripture. He's got to be the Messiah that fulfills Scripture. He did it in every realm in coming to the earth, in every realm during his life, and in every realm after he died, even to the point of the grave that he was buried in while he was dead, all to fulfill scripture. God is absolutely serious about sin. There is no way that any human being can pay the penalty for their sin. There is no way any church can pay for the penalty of anyone's sin. There is no way that any religious person, clergy, Sanhedrin, priest, rabbi, whatever, can pay for the penalty of sin. God had to do it himself, and he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. And in the response of reading that you read in Psalm 96 this morning, you might not have made the connection. But in that Psalm, it talked about this wonderful word, world, excuse me, and God's creating it, and how everything should praise God. And in the last two verses, it says, because he is the righteous judge that will judge the world, and every man will give an account. And those who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ will face condemnation and hell and the lake of fire for all eternity. And if you haven't trusted in Christ and you're in this room, you don't know when your death is coming. And if it comes unexpectedly today and you don't have faith in him, you will see the reality. 
And if you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ, you don't have condemnation, not because you've earned it, but because of the mercy and grace of God and his drawing you through faith in Christ and you've placed it in him. But you and I still as believers need to give an account. What are we doing with our life? Do you think God's serious when he says that he left us here to be a witness and a testimony for Christ and to tell others about Christ and to live for Christ and to be a witness for him? Do you think he's serious when he says that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we've done since salvation? He is serious. Critics come and go. Religions come and go. God's word stands, and it will be fulfilled. I appeal to you who haven't trusted in Christ, don't put it off one more minute. Trust in Christ and repent right there in your pew. And fellow believers, if you're walking with Christ, trying to live for him, praise God, continue on. If you've been falling away, not paying attention to the things of God, wake up. The time is short. Our life is but a shadow, it says in Scripture. It's like a passing of time. Soon we'll be before Christ, and oh, we'll be praising God for entrance into the kingdom and to be with him. But how will we be with our life spent? Will it be producing wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, precious stone? Will it be producing fruit and more fruit and much fruit to the glory of God? Or will the fruit be so scanty because we were so like the world and in the world that we were silent, quote-unquote, believers that no one even knew we belonged to Christ because we were ashamed? Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel, nor should we be. May God help us to live for his honor and glory. What a savior we have. I look forward to getting into the resurrection starting next week because there's victory over death. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, we thank you and praise you so much. It's really beyond our comprehension to see the extent of your love. And the sacrifice of Christ, we can look at it, we can intellectually perceive it, can see and read about the death and read about your love and read, read about what happened in the fulfillment of scripture. But oh, Father, how the human heart is so deceptive, desperately wicked. But we thank you by the grace of God that you open up our understanding to the gospel. And I pray for anyone in this room that is not yet trusted in Christ. Help them to see that he is the Messiah that was promised. Help them to see how he fulfilled scripture and that he is the only way and they would trust in him today. Help them to see that death is a reality as well as eternal punishment and you are serious about judging this world in righteousness. For believers, we thank you that Jesus Christ bore our sins. We thank you that we do not face condemnation because we're in Christ Jesus. How we praise your name for that. Might we never take that for granted. And Father, yet as human beings as we walk, we know we fail day in and day out, but help us to yield to the Spirit of God. Help us to realize that you are Lord of our life. And Father, as we yield, that we would bring glory to your name. Help us to bear fruit abundantly for the name of Jesus Christ, that you again would receive all the honor and glory. 
and that we would hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you for this time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.